0: Johannes Kepler was uh, one of the most famous scientists who ever lived and is famous for defining the three laws of planetary motion. He defended Copernicus's sun-centered universe and discovered that planets move in ellipses. And as you can see there, that made the whole conception of the universe much more dynamic. It turned into something to be explained by the laws of physics. So less well-known is the fact that in 1615, his mother, Katharina, was accused of witchcraft when Kepler was aged 44, and at the very height of his career as he prepared to publish his Harmony of the World. The accusation turned into a trial in which Kepler took over the legal defense. Trial proceedings began in 1620 and brought the greatest experience of troubled dissonance to the life of a man trying to prove cosmic harmony. Kepler eventually moved back from Linz in Austria, where he lived at the time, to the southwest of Germany for one year, to extensively visit his mother in prison. Kategorina, by then was in her early 70s, uh, permanently chained to a stone floor and watched by two guards who believed she was a witch. The documentation is extensive and charles a six year long process in which Kepler and his siblings lived through the trauma of this ordeal of the accusation and carried their complicated feelings towards each other and towards Katerina with them. Katerina's trial ended exactly 400 years ago in 1621. So in this lecture, I wish to argue that we should remember this great man of science in part through his defense of an old, illiterate mother. I furthermore argue that the European witch craze needs to be thought of in relation to families. So as I embarked on researching my book, uh, The Astronomer and the Witch, It turned out that witchcraft and the family as a subject presented quite uncharted territory. Yet every accusation and trial were thickly embedded in social relationships in the community, obviously, as many historians have shown, but also with relatives who could decide to support or to distance themselves from the accused. This change in perspective implies a major shift in how we approach the magnitude of the prosecution of witches. We must multiply, it seems to me, the tens of thousands of men and women who were accused during the witch craze and recognize the profound and lasting effect accusations had on families and even on generations. What emerges powerfully through the records was that relatives like Johannes Kepler carried a multiplicity of feelings, voices and perspectives within them. They responded to accusations not only with compassion and love but also uncertainty, fear, repudiation and guilt and they could be overwhelmed by a sense of shame. The emotions registered in their imagination, through their fantasies and dreams, as children of an alleged witch and as siblings who took different sides in the drama that unfolded. And the structure of the lecture today is as follows, Then I want to start by presenting you with some background on this phenomenon called the witch craze in the early modern period, then turn to a biography of Katharina Kepler, then to Johannes Kepler, focus in on the period of imprisonment of Caterina and on Johannes Kepler's great legal defense before uh, coming to some conclusions. So let's start with the witch craze in the early modern period. We often associate the witch craze, I think, with the Middle Ages, with something medieval, And yet the persecution of witches seriously started off in the age of the printing press and the scientific revolution, in what historians call the early modern period from around 1450 uh, to 1700. 73,000 men and women were tried for witchcraft and 40,000 executed in Europe between 1500 and 1,700, and I'm just going to repeat those figures because sometimes they can be a bit difficult to take in, so we now think of around 73,000 men and women accused and 40,000 executed in Europe. The geographies are stark. More than half of all witches, about 22,000, were executed in the German lands from 1560. And these are really remarkable figures. Uh, if we look at the Spanish, Portuguese and Roman inquisitions with their highly centralized bureaucracy, uh, we can see that they're estimated to have carried out around 300,000 trials, so many more during uh, their period of existence activity, and to have executed about uh, 13,860 um, uh, victims. So that is to say that far more people died in Germany as witches than from the activities of the Inquisition at its centres. Three of every four witches executed during the height of the European persecutions spoke some dialect of German, three out of every four witches. Seventy-five percent of those accused were women. So, and that's the end of figures uh, for now. Early modern Europe uh, then, therefore, was a haunted world in which almost everyone, simple or sophisticated, believed in the existence of witches and the devil. Ever since Keith Thomas's groundbreaking Religion and the Decline of Magic, published exactly 50 years ago this year, studies of witchcraft have been written to explain the mental climate of society which faced extraordinary challenges during the height of the witch craze. So from 1580 to 1650. In Germany, climatic changes led to repeated harvest failures. Hailstorms could be so hard that they destroyed not just crops, but cattle and church steeples and other buildings. Prices rose, hunger spread, plague and illness struck during those years. Here, as elsewhere in Europe during the 16th century, the population had greatly grown during the 16th century, making resources scarcer and employment far harder to get. Men and women had to negotiate on top of this the experience of the reformations, which divided Germans into Catholics and Protestants. The Counter-Reformation gained force in Germany from the 1570s onwards, heightening religious and political anxieties. Earlier in the century, images and sensationalist uh, writing began to elaborate the scary figure of the witch as an old, envious, super-heretical hag keen to attack fertility and rave at the Sabbath. Now, what's a Sabbath? A Sabbath was a demonic mass gathering, imagined as such, where witches feasted with male devils and mixed their deadly selves. Such fantasies, I think, fueled rather than managed fears. Witchcraft, that was the core of this fear. Witchcraft could be done by everyone. It was this horrific idea which corrupted social trust. Harm could be spread through the weather, through touch, as well as gifts that were very commonly exchanged. An apple could be poisoned, a cake likewise, or a drink. Witches were neighbours, family and friends, or domestic employees, transported sometimes to the sabbath once the devil had handed them an initial supply of his salves. Although it's important to uh, stress that not all of these narratives by far involve uh, the um, gathering at the sabbath. So old women like Katerina Kepler were more frequently demonized. Johannes Kepler himself thought that his mother was accused because old women were hunted down in his age. And we can track this disturbing process of how old women came to be defined as ugly and possibly demonic through images, and I want to show you a few of those. As this German statuette from around 1530 shows, it's anonymous and it is in uh, two British collections here, the Fitzwilliam Museum Collection in Cambridge, it's also the Victoria and Albert Museum. As this statuette shows, it was still possible at the beginning of the 16th century to attract collectors with images of old women who were marked by childbirth, but nonetheless beautiful Dignified and erotic. This visualization of women, however, then disappeared for centuries. It got overlaid with another uh, visualization of women as um, old women as witch-like for the uh, next decades. So typical for the early modern period uh, were depictions of old women as envious and hateful and as witches. The Nuremberg artist Albrecht Dürer pioneered in 1500 with a small woodcut of an old woman with grey hair sprouting from her chin, provoking hailstorms to devastate the land. And you can see the detail here and her strength as she holds onto a goat. In 1510, his disciple Baldung Green produced a coloured woodcut That showed an old witch with two young women she had lured into her crazed world, mixing their deadly potions at the Sabbath, even though there you can see no devil. Um, Otherwise uh, these kinds of images, as you can see already from the Dürer, turn out to be ones where you can uh, play a game of can you spot the goat, Uh, can you spot the cat? Both these animals were associated with sexual lust, so here's the goat and there is the cat. And another feature of uh, this uh, print is that we have a pitchfork here. The pitchfork was what you took in the imagination of the period to uh, fly out. Uh, and here we have um, uh, penises that are hung uh, across it uh, simply because these witches have been emasculating men, destroying their potency. And we can also see here, if you You can see that it's obviously uh, the case that they seem to have destroyed precious animals like horses um, or powerful uh, men, so that is a clerical hat there. So very vivid imagination here, and you get a real sense of um, uh, these women's strength physically as well. So these woodcuts show that fears of women's demonic power were real at the time. It's so difficult for us to imagine that, but that is the case. It was real, the devil, as a force, and witches likewise, although many Lutheran pastors preached that women could not actually cause harm and unite themselves with the devil. In the view of Lutheran pastors, they only imagined doing so, for which they still deserved to be uh, burned. The medical doctor, Johann Weyer, was one of the few to argue later in the century that women claiming to be witches were melancholic, or as we would say, depressed, and deserved treatment for their condition, for their imaginations. And we see here in the last image I want to show you uh, and getting closer uh, to uh, Johannes Kepler's uh, and Katharina Kepler's period, uh, Jacques de Gaigne in 1610, uh, illustrating this idea when he produced a large engraving about old women as witches. You can see that it abounds with energy Uh, and I want to show you a detail if you look at the tree trunk here and the woman who lifts um, the lid of the cauldron in which she is making herself, so this is the detail here. As Claudia Swan has shown, this engraving is likely to have come out of a particular intellectual milieu in Leiden, connected to the medical university faculty and de Gaines' brother-in-law, who translated the Englishman Reginald Scott's discovery of witchcraft published in 1584. And the women we therefore see in the engraving, there seem to be these raving, simple, useless, ignorant, vile, uneducated, gullible, toothless, decrepit old women described in that literature who delude themselves to be witches. The gain shows them suspended in their fantasies of gaining power as they prepare again these deadly selves. Women during this period were, of course, thought to be daughters of Eve and more sinful than men. They were ascribed less a reason and rationality and more sexual lust than men. Of course, women could distance themselves from such stereotypes through their behavior and demonstrated piety, for instance, but Katharina Kepler's generation still received significantly less education than men, and many assumed that the older one was, the more corrupted human nature turned out to be. And all of this together made women like Katharina in the German lands vulnerable to be accused as witches. So I now want to turn to um, the the second part of the lecture, which is on Katharina Kepler and her biography. Katharina Kepler was around 68 when she was accused in the southwest German town of Leonberg in 1615. Katharina vehemently denied the charge and her family were equally outraged. A former friend claimed, and she was called Ursula Reinbold, and she was the wife of a glazier, she claimed that Katerina had poisoned her with a drink and caused her extraordinary chronic pain. Soon the schoolmaster claimed that Katerina had handed him a drink that made him lame, and other accusations in the community followed. So I came across this trial in the Württemberg uh, State Archive many years ago and quite unusually the whole file seemed complete. And in addition the archive in Leonberg itself was remarkable, it was one of the best documented for the time and this made it possible to reconstruct the biography of an ordinary woman with an extraordinary biography. Uh, Katharina was born as the daughter of a mayor in the village of Eltingen uh, near Leonberg, a village uh, exactly opposite of where the Leonberg archives are now housed. In her early 20s, she married Heinrich Kepler of the nearby city of Walderstadt, whose family was more prestigious. Yet Heinrich was a problematic husband who became a soldier and fought in the battlefields of Flanders while Katharina soon lived with his hostile parents and two boys she would mostly bring up on her own. The Keplers eventually moved to Leonberg and their status was middling. Johannes began his schooling career at age seven And it was obvious that he was a very gifted child. He was picked up by boarding schools for gifted children and later gained a scholarship at Tübingen University. His brother, by contrast, suffered from epilepsy, was difficult to employ, and would later turn into a bitter, angry man who was the first to actually call his mother, publicly a witch, when he returned to Caterina during the winter 1615, demanded to be served meat, and Caterina could not find any meat for him. Katerina had two more children in her early 40s, so the other one she obviously had immediately after um, uh, marrying, the other in her early 40s, and these survived to adulthood, um, and she became widowed. When she became widowed, her son Christoph became a local craftsman, a puturer, and a daughter married a Lutheran pastor. Reconstructing Katerina's biography meant to be able to honour that even though she was a single parent for most of her life, because her husband was uh, always fighting as a soldier and only back intermittently, she had actively supported her children. In fact, it seems that her own life was more secure financially and emotionally, just as she was accused in 1615. Her husband had finally died after that difficult marriage. She had inherited some money from her father and her children were grown up. She was particularly proud of her daughter, whom she had sent to school and who was married to that pastor. So much of my motivation for writing uh, the book was to counter the stereotype which is repeated in nearly all Anglo-American writing about Katharina Kepler, that she was actually witch-like. The argument is, or the implication is, an old crone. One novel about Kepler even includes a scene in which Katharina cooks bat wings with three old hideous women friends and clearly is involved in making magic. Yet the documents prove that Katharina Kepler used herbal medicine just like everyone else in the community and never to make a living. There was no pharmacy at the time in uh, Leonberg or the area. Moreover, she was not uh, known to be quarrelsome. I've looked at all of Leonberg's court books and she's not registered in any one of them, even for slander. Uh, Leonberg... Uh, numbered around uh, 1,000 inhabitants and was tightly regulated. As you can see, its distinctive geographical position facilitated a sense of tightness. Yet a woman like Katharina Kepler was not enclosed in her community. One of the most surprising facts to emerge was how frequently Katerina traveled long distances well into her old age. She independently traveled to Prague, Linz, or Ulm. In fact, she decided to shelter from the pressure of the accusation against her for uh, prolonged periods for staying with Johannes Kepler, and just as he was working on his most important work, The Harmony of the World. And that leads me to the next section on Johannes Kepler. Johannes Kepler, as we said, was at the height of his career during these years. He certainly must rank as among the most influential scientists ever who came from a disadvantaged background. Whereas Galileo's father, for instance, was a noted scholar of music, Kepler's father, as we've seen, was a soldier who kept running away from the family. Johannes Kepler, by contrast, soon emerged as that extremely talented boy. He was picked up by one of the most advanced scholarship systems in the German lands and lived uh, a lot of the time in boarding schools rather than at home. Soon he gained the position of an imperial mathematician, By 1619, he lived in the Austrian town of Linz and was filled with extraordinary confidence in his unique ability to understand God's universe. Kepler actually believed that he had the insight to understand God's building plans, that God had sort of waited for him to unravel them, and and that, of course, was in many ways the case. Uh, but also uh, God's playfulness and jokes manifest in nature. Creation to Kepler was about more than the laws of planetary motion he famously defined. And I want to show you two illustrations that bear out these two sides of Kepler. We often think of him as a mechanistic philosopher uh, interested in geometry and, and order, And uh, what he does, and this is an unpublished uh, facsimile from a letter his first uh, wife wrote, uh, which he then took as scrap paper, and it gives us this unique glimpse into his everyday practice, which was just a lot of drudgery in uh, arithmetical uh, calculations. And why was he doing that? He was trying to calculate the distance of the planets. And he himself found that quite boring, but he also knew that he was the only one who could really do this at a sufficient standard from observations others had made. And um, what fascinated him, as I said, on the other hand, was, of course, uh, uh, God as a playful uh, creator. And he thought, as many others did in that age, that creation was still ongoing. And here's a puzzle that no historians of science um, have solved so far, so if we don't look at modern editions of Kepler's work, but at his books we see these uh, wonderful woodcuts, and no one's been able to explain just why it is that we see uh, flowers and, and pears it seems in, in some of them, all these wonderfully animated images of the sun, but I think you know one answer is that that was expressing Uh, his view that this was a universe filled with um, beauty, playfulness, and ongoing creation. So once his mother had been imprisoned, uh, Kepler stored up all his belongings uh, to move his entire family from Austria to Germany. He had no idea how long the trial would take or what its outcome might be. Um, But before he left, uh, he commissioned this portrait. Today, it presents us with our only clue as to what Kepler looked like as he entered his 50s, lived through the final phase of his mother's exceptional trial, and traveled across lands ridden uh, by the Thirty Years' War, disease, and destitution. With his right elbow assertively placed on one hip, The imperial mathematician in midlife exuded distinction and intellectual alertness. Kepler, in fact, somewhat obsessively thought about his mother as defaced by age. This painting showed Kepler as impressive man at the height of his powers. Kepler's seemingly relaxed portrait was carefully considered as his mother stood accused and the scientists' own unorthodox religious views were under attack. His former professor of theology at Tübingen University, in fact, had reprimanded Kepler in 1619 that he suffered from a confused spirit. Question was, could the devil attack him? Kepler wanted to create a different image for himself, not as anxious, angry man, but as assured and composed. His mother's trial nonetheless brought his professional ambitions into sharp relief. From the very beginning, his tone was highly emotive as he set out to defend his own reputation at all costs. At the heart of the trial, Um, At the heart of the uh, trial for Johannes Kepler thus lay an uncomfortable question he addressed directly in The Harmony of the World, published in 1619 as local witnesses testified against his mother in court. To what extent was he like his mother? And so this is uh, an extraordinary passage because usually in these natural philosophies, as we call them, these books in Latin, of course, um, the harmony of the world, there would not be any comment on uh, uh, the author's personal life or uh, indeed a a mother, least of all, But in Book 4, Chapter 7 of The Harmony, Kepler set out how different he and his mother were, despite the fact that they had been born under an almost identical astrological constellation as well. And he thought they shared the same physique, the same physical constitution. Kepler explained that Caterina had not had the opportunity to receive any formal education. While pregnant, he curiously alleged his mother had begun to admire her mother-in-law and this woman's father, both of them, had been popular healers. Caterina's behavior thus needed to be explained through her female nature, in Kepler's view then, through circumstance, but also through her temperament, which Kepler judged, again in Latin, certainly very restless. He startlingly summarized, She disturbs the whole of her town and is the author of her own lamentable misfortune. Kepler at this point then in 1619 clearly felt resentful of his mother. Yet he did most to defend her and it is unlikely that she would have survived if it had not been for him. Through the trial, he became closer to his mother and understood more of her world. So we turn now to... The imprisonment. On the 7th August of August 1620, Katharina Kepler was first imprisoned in Stuttgart and then led to Leonberg for the beginning of a formal trial, formal criminal trial. Her youngest son, Christoph, the local puterer, felt horrified. It seems that he could only imagine. Uh, He could imagine only too easily the civic guard taking a 73-year-old, now nearly toothless, small white-haired Katerina from one of Leonberg's prison towers to take her on a chain or rope to the town hall right in front of his house on the market square. His reaction showed that he could not bear to think of the shame. Every German execution was staged by local governments as a communal event to admonish everyone and make them pray for a poor sinner's soul in eternity. Could he imagine being in the crowd to watch his mother's corpse being laid on tightly stacked wood? Christoph wrote to Duke John Frederick of Württemberg at once, proudly relating that he had honourably learned his trade and even practice it with particular fame. The past five years of investigations against his mother had already been extremely painful for him and his family to live through. Now he feared people's open contempt. Christoph Kepler demanded that Katharina's trial should be conducted elsewhere. The ducal chancellor decided to grant this and to transfer her to a small town. So here, just to show you, this is actually the uh, town hall of um, Leonberg, um, in which uh, Katharina would have been interrogated, and Christoph Kepler, her son, really uh, the really lived straight opposite uh, on that market square. So she was transferred then to a small town to save him that shame—a uh, small town called Guglingen. About 60 kilometers away from Leonberg, so really quite a distance in that age, a place she had never been to before. Johannes Kepler now moved to Württemberg as quickly as he could. He took his family to a Halfway Point with him by boat, then rented a horse to ride to Ulm and travelled up north to Stuttgart. From there he had to find his way up still further north and off the large trade routes, asking for directions to Guglingen, near the town of Heilbronn, where he knew nobody and nobody knew of him. He arrived by the end of September. The famous mathematician was led to his old mother in the Guglingen Tower and that is not longer extent, but uh, this is a similar tower from the city of Memmingen in which witches were actually held. After three weeks imprisonment, she complained bitterly that she was old, sad, and lonely, and bereft of comfort. Johannes Kepler knew that he was now the only one of Katharina's children capable and willing to stand by her. Following detailed conversation with his imprisoned mother, Kepler now swiftly prepared a powerful, concise, and clearly structured legal document in Caterina's defense. And that takes us to the last part of this lecture. And you can see uh, uh, the original here, the defense with his own writing, as it is preserved in the archive in Stuttgart. Kepler's scientific life, like that of all his successful colleagues, was marked by his robust ability to counter rivaling enmity in disputes by sticking to a powerful line of argument while meticulously attending to detailed point-by-point refutations. Coupled to this were his rhetorical skills that enabled him to discredit his opponent's deeper motives. These were the same strategies he brought to bear on his mother's trial. Rather than attending to the details of who witnesses were and the contents of the allegation, he dismissed the case through the lines of argument familiar from his scientific world. There was no solid argument, and the procedure, which tried to turn allegations into reliable evidence, was just wrong. Kepler's lengthy legal defence first attacked the ability of many witnesses who had been interrogated in January to testify reliably. They were simply too young uh, to rely on anything other than hearsay about his mother's reputation, he argued. It was a strong legal requirement that a bad reputation needed to be well established before an accusation could be made. So this is not an age of rough justice. There were such clear rules. To establish factual evidence for his defense uh, from superior male witnesses, Kepler had read the depositions very, very closely, so almost like as closely as you read scientific texts. So I want to read you a brilliant passage from this uh, defense, um, and it's going to mention several um, names of those who had been accusing Katharina Kepler, like Ursula Reinbold. So he passionately argued that the Reinbold woman suffers pains in her head, that Beitelsbacher's limbs are lame, that Bastian Meyer's wife withered away and died, the tire-maker's woman has an open wound on her thigh, the bathing master's apprentice felt sick in her stomach for many hours and vomited, that Topher Frick had a pain in his thigh for a day or two, that the late pastor of Gerbesheim's daughter had a sore foot, that Daniel Schneider's children died, that Halle's little daughter had a sore arm that Jürgen Belzen lost a sow, and Oswald zahn, and a calf, and that Michael Stalin's cow was restless and ailing but soon recovered, nevertheless taken together, these stories and facts do not necessarily constitute specific acts of witchcraft. Many persons, both male and female, die every day of consumption and still more children of other diseases. Many people are crooked or lame. There's no need to waste the judge's time with the death of cattle and swine, which is an everyday occurrence. Among the indicators used to distinguish between natural and unnatural ailments, one of the most important is that when the harm is caused by witchcraft, the pain is worse at the beginning and does not develop in a regular manner. This does not apply to the Reinbold woman, Beitelsbacher, and the Tilemaker's woman, and Haller's girl, whose illness waxed from day to day until reaching its height thus it is also believed that such harm is of no natural origin when it follows the moon and the weather as in the case of a gobersheim's daughter and once again in that of the Rheinbold woman it also cannot be cured by natural remedies although halle's girl recovered her health by common ordinary means and on he goes Johannes Kepler, in short, argued that it was one thing to run into people's houses like his mother had done, and another thing to be a witch. Any associations between these two would make any old garrulous and frequently disliked woman vulnerable to this far-fetched accusation. This insistence that any general unease about a woman's behaviour had to match with specific reasons for suspecting her of sorcery was a key legal argument for caution at the time. Kepler set out why it was paramount to distinguish between natural and unnatural illnesses, as we heard, and went into considerable medical detail to make this statement as authoritative as possible. Its ingenious noting of details, which could then be conclusively dismissed, made this one of his rhetorical masterpieces. And the irony, of course, he Uh, 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 implies of these um, accusations piling up in their absurdity. All these magical mystery diseases, Kepler argued, could be explained through medical knowledge and common sense. Kepler did not rule out that sorcery might inflict harm, but in these cases, the pain was immediate and severe from the start rather than increasing gradually. So Kepler believed in magic yet he tried to use his superior analytical skills to unpick the accusation against his mother. He never published his defense, nor did he try to defend any other woman against the charge of witchcraft. When his mother was finally acquitted, the scientist was utterly exhausted and did not correspond even with his closest friends for months. Katerina was so frail after over a year of imprisonment, that she died within six months. And I now want to turn to some conclusions. The Kepler's trial, I think, tells us that the victims of Germany's witch craze were not just women. In a society in which reputation mattered so much, each accusation implied those she was related to and raised. In recent years, Kepler and his family have appeared sometimes as dubious, even murderous people. In 2004, a team of American journalists alleged that Kepler systematically poisoned the man he succeeded at the court of Rudolf II in Prague, Tycho Brahe. It has become a commonplace in much Anglo-American writing to depict Kepler's mother as that difficult, bizarre, and half-crazed old crone. And it's been great to see a a novel by Rivka Galchen come out um, uh, just now in June uh, that tries to uh, tell the story differently from Katharina's perspective and is built in part of the research in in The Astronomer and the Witch. Johannes Kepler and his mother lived through one of the most epic tragedies in the age of the witch craze. It's high time to honor Kepler's defence of his mother, as well as Katerina's ability to resist a false accusation. Yet in doing so, we need to be mindful of past commemorations. Nothing quite prepared me from the moment when I first got off the bus in Eltingen, the village in which Katerina Kepler was born. Looking at rows of beautifully restored half-timbered houses, with their pots of bright red geraniums outside, I recognized the village well. Then I spotted the monument for Catarina, which I knew from a local history of the trial. The statue depicts a young, slender female reaper. It's a work by Jakob Fehrle, a professor of art, uh, passionate about sculpting often these um, elongated um, uh, girls, uh, uh, as if they were neo-Gothic really depictions, and fairly held his post throughout the Third Reich and took on several Nazi commissions for public art, while some of his previous work was removed from collections as degenerate. Seeing the sculpture made me appreciate even more strongly the oddity um, in relation to what we know about the woman it represents. This village street prides itself as one of the prettiest in South Germany. Eltingen's mayor, Karl Schminke held office from 1934 to 38, so uh, during the Third Reich, and the street is named after him up to this day. It was his project to demonstrate the new spirit of the Nazi takeover uh, in what had before been an overwhelmingly communist uh, community. A small space was created for Katharina Kepler's monument to serve as a symbol of this community's uh, community of peasants and workers. Uh, as Schminke said, a symbol of work and industriousness. And he explained that in his opening speech in 1937. Upright as a community, proud and strong. The mayor's tree, uh, speech evolved, uh, evoked the whole street as a site of memory, which had witnessed much hardship during many years of plague and war. Schminke praised Katerina's combative nature, her strength and her unique character – and love of truth. He even argued that her steadfast denial of the witchcraft charge had paved the way for ending persecutions in Germany as a whole, which is absolutely not the case. People of Eltingen, be proud of this work, your village well, the landmark of your community, Schminke emphatically exclaimed before unveiling the figure. Strikingly, the monument represents Katerina as a young woman. It is as if showing her as an old woman, as that old woman she was in 1615, remained unrepresentable. Nor was she a heroine, but why should we turn her into one? Today, the denigration of aging in women persists through an obsession with bodily and mental decay. It is high time for another commemoration of Katharina Kipler in the village she was born in, not through an idolizing Nazi monument, but through a sculpture that pays tribute to her achievements as a mother of an unusual boy who was highly gifted and one of the most famous scientists and most significant scientists who ever lived, to her resistance to the notion that she was an ally of the devil, and to her and many other women suffering in their old age. Thank you very
1: much, Professor Rublak. We've got some questions for you from the audience online. Um, let me start with this one, which has got a lot of votes. Katerina comes across as a strong, independent, lone, brackets, no husband, brackets, woman. Was it more common for unmarried or widowed women to be accused of witchcraft?
0: Um, So um, you can see that, I mean it's very difficult to um, uh, do systematic analysis but I certainly think they were more vulnerable and you can see just why. I mean rumour build up over a long time usually uh, the rumour that someone might be a witch and in this process of course it's already really significant um, who you're related to, who backs you, who your friends are And of course, uh, married and securely married uh, women had a stronger standing and were protected uh, by their husbands. And so she clearly uh, uh, was—that's absolutely uh, right— incredibly uh, strong in in dealing with the fact that her husband was away most of the time. Every time he was back, it was very difficult. He clearly was someone who was, um, you know, who I mean, we have lots of evidence uh, for that. He couldn't hold, hold hold down other jobs. He was a very impulsive, eruptive man, and yet you know, they also did have these uh, further children she then raised. So yes, clearly she had to be strong and independent and rely on other people in the community to help her with harvesting and so on. Uh, But uh, then she also became more vulnerable.
1: Kepler published one of the first pieces of science fiction, a book called The Dream, which tells the story of a witch and her son. Can you tell us more about this?
0: Yes, so this um, is, is uh, a fascinating um, uh, text, The Dream, uh, which he begins as a student uh, uh, and then continues in Prague. And it shows his genius because what he's actually doing, the scientific part of this uh, uh, science fiction, is he imagines what the Earth would look like if seen from the moon. Um, uh, but there's a prologue, And this prologue actually began to haunt him uh, because I've just explained how we can almost uh, explain quite easily that women like Katerina became vulnerable. But for someone like Kepler who went through this trauma, and that's why I would call it a trauma, he returns to Linz and unpacks his boxes and um, he's actually still left with this question of how could this happen to us? And in trying to explain it now, and this is psychologically fascinating, despite the fact that he's the one who defends his mother, as we've seen, he suddenly starts to feel guilty and blame himself, because he unpacks this manuscript of the dream that was just not printed yet, and he looks at the prologue, and the prologue tells a story of a son and a mother and the son is very much a scientist, like Kepler, and the mother is a witch, who then has um, a a relationship with a good demon who grants her these insights into what uh, the Earth would look like from the moon. So Kepler now spins this um, story of guilt um, that actually this manuscript must have uh, circulated from Prague to Tübingen and that it's this manuscript, the story he fabricated that uh, gave people that very idea that his mother uh, was a witch. And what he does in a way to get over this trauma and deal with the aftermath and also his mother now having died um, uh, is that he edits this work and prepares it for publication. And it's a crazy text to look at. It's got lots of footnotes, which wasn't usual for that time uh, yet. Uh, And every footnote says, well, I had this idea. It was nothing to do with my actual mother because I had read this in another book. Um, or he says, well, actually, it's very difficult to always be clear about where the lines between magic and reason lie. So it's a fascinating uh, text, and that is the psychological story behind him preparing it for publication.
1: Do you think Kepler's mother was accused of witchcraft because of Johannes' uh, scientific work, or inversely because they saw her as an old woman and did not realise she had a powerful son?
0: Yes, I think um, uh, uh, more the latter. I mean, it's a it's a um, interesting question to ask how well known he really was um, uh, in the community. I mean, obviously, he only published in Latin. Uh, very few people would have been able to. Uh, read that if if any um i mean there 's no in the inventories that are very fully extended, nobody owned a kepler book in 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 Leonberg. Um he uh, the way he was addressed uh, was in the german hell uh, so so mister. which had a connotation of honor, so they were of course aware of his status and that to an extent uh, but it's just that through the records you don't really get any sense because that would have been such a clear hypothesis that it was something about her being unusual because he was unusual you don't get any sense of that reading the documents
1: do we know if katerina was allowed to be buried in consecrated ground
0: yeah so um this is a real mystery, in fact, uh, what happened to her um, after she was released from prison, and as I told you, she lived for another six months, um, was clearly very weak, and the, the mystery is really where she went, um, and it's always been assumed that Kepler um, delivered her to her daughter, who also no longer lived in Leonberg because her um, husband, the pastor, had taken off uh, on a parish, elsewhere and wanted to get rid of, of Leonpack and, and the damage to their reputation there and, and, and where it'd been before. Um, so the assumption has been for no substantial reason at all that Kepler deposited the mother with a daughter and then went back to Linz. Uh, however, I think that is rather unlikely uh, because we know that in fact her daughter no longer communicated with her in the last phase of uh, her life because um, the husband, the pastor, was really so worried about it. He said, I don't want anything to do with this anymore. So just like Christoph Kepler. So in that sense, the most plausible hypothesis would be that Kepler took Katharina with him to Austria, to Linz, in which case, um, and that would also explain why he doesn't write any letters during that period, Um, uh, and he didn't want to tell anyone now about her whereabouts. So it it is a mystery. So therefore, I I cannot answer that question.
1: How did her daughter respond to her mother's plight?
0: Yes, so um, this is uh, Margareta Binder, um, and uh, she first uh, was with the mother. The mother had given her, enabled that education for her and clearly supported her. She also had you know, the usual motherly anxieties about her not getting um, uh, uh, the wrong husband, so really endorsed her. Uh, this marriage, um, and um, and we know that she still visited her mother when she's first imprisoned in Stuttgart, and that she actually uh, uh, that the mother lived with her just before in uh, the vicarage in a, a place near Stuttgart called Heumaden. But you know, the very it seems as if um, the very uh, uh, scene. Um, of um, of Katerina Kepler being discovered in the daughter's house. I mean, it was summer. Um, and uh, summer 1620, it was very hot, uh, the daughter obviously told her as the soldiers were approaching the guard uh, from, uh, from Stuttgart to imprison her, she told her, you know, just hide, hide, it was early in the morning, so and then of course they searched the house and they found Katerina crouched in a big uh, trunk uh, without any clothes on, uh, and then she was taken out and led uh, from the vicarage to Stuttgart. And it must have been um, really uh, that moment that was, uh, the, the, uh, began to be the turning point, certainly for, um, for her pastor husband, who uh, did not want then any further contact um, after she was moved to Guglingen.
1: What was Johannes Kepler's status at the time of the trial?
0: Um, so Kepler's status was still that of an imperial uh, mathematician. So uh, Rudolf II had died in um, 1612, but he was renewed in that position. Um, the trouble was he was never getting paid uh, uh, very, very much, so it was very difficult to secure payment. But that was his status. He was also employed by the estates um, uh, in, in Linz. Uh, he was measuring essentially the, the land for them.
1: And turning to the wider context, were any nuns or priests accused of witchcraft in this period?
0: Now, any nuns or priests. um, uh, um, We can think, of course, of of Loudon, uh, a famous case in in France. Um, uh, But otherwise, it was quite rare. So uh, the, the ordinary, you know, the common witchcraft case In in many ways, he's like that of Katharina Kepler. Uh, So it's a a local um, um, accusation by someone, so we can think about this woman who starts it all off, then uh, Ursula Reinbold. What would the story look like from her point of view? So clearly this was a woman who suffered terrible chronic pain. Uh, and her way to manage that was then to uh, uh, externalize it and say, I have been harmed. Uh, she was very vocal. She shouted uh, in pain uh, through, um, you know, everybody could hear it on the streets, and actually the local pastor was on her side, empathized with her. Um, so, so that was uh, the most common uh, type of scenario we can see.
1: Kepler clearly believed in both astrology and witchcraft. Are these connected in this belief or generally in Germany at the time?
0: Not really. Um, uh, It's an interesting question, thank you, but uh, not really. Um, uh, Astrology um, uh, was quite a separate um, um, system of ideas. And in fact, I don't think, I I certainly haven't read any. a horoscope that forecasts um, that you might become a witch or that you might be involved um, with uh, that kind of charge, um, no.
1: Is there evidence to indicate that Katerina was interrogated with the use of physical force to elicit a confession?
0: Yes, uh, it, I mean, no, uh, So there, <laughs> uh, she, there, there wasn't. So uh, what happened at the end in Guglingen... Um, was that there uh, was a decision by the Tübingen law faculty. Um, So I said already, this wasn't an age of uh, very rough justice as we sometimes imagine it without any trial procedure whatsoever. Um, So uh, by then in Württemberg, any decision about whether uh, someone should be tortured or not uh, went to uh, the law faculty in the University of Tübingen. And these men sat down and they looked at precedents and so on. And in Katerina's uh, case, they could have also decided not just to um, immediately um, set her free, but they did not decide to do that. They decided uh, for something called uh, verbal torture. And this meant that uh, a hangman was um, asked to come in and to show uh, the instruments of torture in a very frightening manner. So the idea was to scare an old woman like Katerina by showing her, for instance, thumb screws. So these were screws that would be um, tied to the thumb. Sometimes the thumbs came off and, and pulled ever harder. Or of course, the rack. You were tied to the rack and then hoisted up and you were just left hanging there. Sometimes weights were then put onto you. So he would be a great showman, the, the executioner who would lay all this out and say, well, you better confess um, in the end.
1: So, interestingly, the word misogyny did not appear once during this uh, excellent presentation. Was this intentional?
0: Was it intentional? Well, the question is, with misogyny, I mean, I think I'm perfectly happy to use it um, because these stereotypes were really... uh, Uh, applied um, very broadly, of course, uh, uh, to women. I I mentioned that they were, of course, seen as as daughters of Eve and and to old women. I'm happy to use it. Um, The question with these terms is always what intellectual work do they actually do uh, for you, uh, are they just a label to stick on, or you know, do they do any um, do they do any uh, 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 conceptual intellectual work for you? And I felt in this paper, it, it wouldn't do that work for me.
1: Um, thank you so much, Professor Rublack. Um, if you uh, have come to this lecture, we'll send you a follow-up email in a couple of days' time with a link to the transcript and the video so you can watch it again. Um, and in the meantime, we've got a lecture tomorrow uh, by Sheila Kanani on Caroline Herschel, who's the first female professional astronomer. Um, so that's tomorrow night at 6 o'clock. Thanks so much.
0: Thank you.